everyone, it's the 17th of October 2016 and it's episode number 15 of season 7. I'm Aaron. Hi, I'm Matt. And uh, we have a very special guest with us today. He is Dr. Rick Besson. He's a professor and extension entomologist from the University of Kentucky. He's also our special seminar speaker today. We're featuring our Gunderson annual uh, lecturer. Tiny Gunderson. Tiny. Gotta, for those that take know. a moment. Yeah. He was a way, way, way back extension entomology in a lot of different areas. And so we celebrate his legacy by having a speaker every fall. And Rick is our speaker this year. So welcome. Well, thank you. <laughs> we, he's been going through a gauntlet all day meeting with different people, a few folks from the USDA, a few people here in, in the insectary. So he's kind of had a busy day, but uh, I guess you said it kind of made the day go fast. Actually, it was a really good day because we've been talking about everything today. <laughs> e every, to everything. everything insect related. From you know talking about mayflies in you know sand shifting streams to <laughs> with Greg Courtney right yeah, yeah okay to beekeeping in North Africa and you know it's just been a, a really great day for those that are fascinated by insects. You have a, you have a wide variety of interests yourself being you know 100% extension homology, everything from field crops, specialty crops. You deal with master gardeners. Pollinators, IPM. It seems you're 100 like percent extension. I am. You're one of the rare ones. I'm a dinosaur. <laughs> yeah, I'm you a living that. dinosaur. You said that, not me. Very young. Well, I mean, dinosaur. It, on paper it's 100 percent, but you actually have a pretty active research program. You have grad students who write grants, all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, my position is theoretically 100 percent extension, but when I uh, compete for competitive grants. I have to show a certain amount of my time is going to be dedicated to the grant and it's because these are research projects that, that uh, gives me a, a period of a research appointment for that grant and so even though I'm a hundred percent my actual uh, research time ranges somewhere between 13 and 30 percent. Okay so, so can you give us a picture of what agriculture looks like in Kentucky? Well, uh, I had a wonderful drive coming into Iowa yesterday. Really? Yeah. You drove up from Kentucky. I yeah, drove up drove. drove up from Kentucky, got up at Nine uh, hours? Four, 4 in the morning, oh. so uh, got up early, drove up here. Uh, came into Ames on Highway 30 from, from the east. Mm -hmm. And so it was a, a, a very nice look at Iowa, go, driving through the rolling hills there. Yes. And I'd have to say with Kentucky compared to Iowa, uh, it is a bit more diverse. Uh, you know, in, in Kentucky, our, our number one crop, or our number one ag revenue generator, not crop, would be poultry production. Oh. Okay. And then, uh, you know, livestock. Fryers or? Egg? Yeah, uh, fryers. Fryers, okay. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, uh, beef cattle are extremely important. Okay. Um, we're not going to count horses in because I don't think they're officially agriculture. In you're, Kentucky, you the, do the, like the racing, right? the, the thoroughbred yeah. horses. <laughs> That's a different kind. <laughs> yeah, it's a different animal altogether. <laughs> but uh, you know, then then we have corn and soybeans, and you know, corn and soybeans are just a, a very small fraction of what you have here in Iowa. I mean, you know, we're we're under two million acres of corn, uh, under one and, a, and three quarter million acres of soybeans in Kentucky. Then, you know, you throw in a few hundred thousand acres of wheat, and th those are our, our big. Uh, row crops, mm -hmm. um, but we have a lot of, of, of other diversity in agriculture. We have uh, 
uh, a really up and growing uh, local foods industry in Kentucky. We have an increasing number of farmers markets in the state. I think we're above 250 farmers markets oh, wow. in the state. Uh, we, we have a, a, a lot of CSAs, you know, community supported yeah. agriculture where people buy shares and farmers deliver uh, so many, so many uh, baskets throughout the season. And uh, so we're not huge in anything in Kentucky, but it seems like we have our foot in everything in Kentucky. Yeah, we, we, we're very diverse. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, we have people that uh, uh, may, may have been growing certain crops for only a couple of years and they, they need lots of uh, advice. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have others that are, you know, maybe a fourth generation grower of that same commodity. And they, they have different extension needs, as, as you'd expect. Yeah. So is a double cropping something that happens in your mm-hmm. area? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, you know, if you go out to the, the, the agricultural areas in western Kentucky, our typical crop sequence is corn followed by an October planting of wheat. Oh. And then they'll harvest that wheat in June and plant soybeans in that field. So we get three crops in two years. And okay. that, that, that is the standard rotation. Okay. So for those field crops, what are some of your primary pest issues? Well, with, with corn, uh, we, we have some uh, soil insect problems that, that are sporadic in nature. But, you know, wireworms and white grubs and seed corn maggot. You have uh, wireworm problems. We do have wireworm problems. How, how often do you see wireworms in the soil? Is it In, in most farms? Yeah. Almost never. But, but then we have a strip of counties in central Kentucky where in a portion of those counties... There seems to be a band of mm. wireworms, and is that I, related to soil type or surrounding landscape? What's the? You know, it's it's all our our, our karst limestone based soils that, that we're dealing with, and I I don't know what it's due to because you go west or east of there, similar soil type, but they don't have the problem. Okay. But I've I've been to some of those farms, done some on farm research on those farms, and. Yeah, they have wireworms. I, I know the exact species they have. It comes yeah. back every year, mm-hmm. and it just seems to be a banding of, of that, that, those farmers. So, so for 95% of our farmers, they don't have wireworm problems, but we have some that have perennial problems, a very small few, and then we have some that, depending upon the rotations that you're using, yeah. you know, you're, you're, you're going into CRP land and you're, you're, you're busting sod. Yeah, yeah. you're going to have... Right. Wireworms, along with white grubs and, right. and other problems in those mm-hmm. high-risk situations. Because mm-hmm. we hear about wireworms. We hear that that's uh, one of the early season pests that you know you really challenge to manage, but rarely do I see them. You know, yeah. it's not something that is as widespread as say rootworm or. No, and and for us, I would say it's definitely in the very uncommon problem, except if you're a handful of farmers. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Too bad for those people. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> they're a, they have a long life cycle, and I, like you said, they're more of a perennial problem. Once you have them, it's, they're there for usually a few years. What do you tell those guys? Well, uh, they, they've had to work on on certain treatments, and I've done some on farm trials to try and dial in what is the best treatment on yeah. those specific farms. Mm-hmm. And you know, some of those people are using a low rate of a, a soil insecticide. 
in combination with a, a medium rate of a, a, a seed treatment. And, and is that to just protect the roots then and allow you to grow a crop, or are you knocking back the population in the soil? I, I, I think sort of both. Um, it's actually, it's, it's fairly interesting how they a, a, attack the, the seedling. So they, they can attack the kernel before it germinates. Okay. They can attack the coleoptile before it gets out of the ground. And all they have to do is kill a few cells on the top of that coleoptile, and it, it just and it's, won't... It's, it's in. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's just a little bit of damage. And the third way is after the seedling emerges, they'll, they'll bore a hole right in the uh, crown of the plant, and they'll Jeez. go right for their growing point. And so three-way attack. There's there, yeah, there's there's three different uh, and and that's a, a window right of time from the time the seed is dropped in the soil to a week, two weeks. Correct, and and it's compounded by growers wanting to plant earlier and mm-hmm. earlier, and so they're planting into cooler soils which means that that, that window is going to be much longer. There's going to be... A so if that, sorry to interrupt, but if that seed were to get through that seedling stage, the, the, the wire worm's not going to have as much of an impact. Is that correct? Well, one, once it gets to a certain size and once that growing point... Get, oh, it's get, out, get, of, get, out get, of danger zone. Get, 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 yeah. Well, it gets away from that crown of that plant. I don't. I'm not even sure it has to be completely out of the ground. Mm. You know, you you're not going to have the the damage anymore. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Okay. And so, you know, growers, if they're willing to delay planting, and so you you're in that that period where you have really quick germination and quick seedling growth, you're going to greatly reduce your risk. So, do you have not to go down a, a a hole here, <laughs> but uh, this planting issue, you know, getting earlier, uh, is uh, no-till an issue in Kentucky? Is that something that, that the agronomists push? Because here, we, you know, we've got an issue with sediment loss, soil erosion. We want to see more no-till, and that one of the concerns with that is it cooler soils. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Kentucky, we, we a lot of our uh, good agricultural land is still pretty highly erodible, and uh, this is this predates me. But the the story I've heard is you know some of the early research on no-till came out of Kentucky, and we're still one of the top states in terms of no-till uh, agriculture. So in terms of percentage of acreage under no-till, correct? Yeah. What Not, would you say? Fifty percent. Uh, yes, yeah, 60, 70 percent. Okay. Pretty yeah. good. Okay. Yeah. Because I think we're like 20, 23. Of no deal. Yeah. 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 But but we're also further south, and so cooler soils may be a little bit less of an issue hmm. than it would be for people moving further north. So, okay. Okay. And do they end up planting a little bit later in those no-till? I'm just wondering if there's any relationship between I, I, no-till and the, and the wireworm issue. I, I think people are trying to plant as early as they can. Just when when, when, yeah. the, when conditions are right, uh, they will plant. Uh, I know every uh, few years I hear about people that are uh, you know, planting corn in, in uh, mid-March in extreme western Kentucky. Wow. Yeah. I mean, same, same here. I feel like most farmers want to plant as soon as possible. And, and I think part of it is that we've seen more erratic summer moisture situations in Kentucky, and pe- people have the strategy they want to try and plant early, 
take advantage of that spring moisture, get a plant up and well established before they have any moisture problems later on in the summer. So I mean, there there is some uh, thought that goes into why, why they're pushing these early uh, yeah. planting. Yeah. Although a lot of our research has shown that even though you can plant early and get a good crop, there is an ideal planting window when you can maximize your yields. And that's a little bit later. That's a little bit later. Yeah. That, that, that's, you know, uh, maybe 10 days to two weeks before some of these very early people are planting. Yeah, I think we would have similar types of models here developed at Iowa State for ideal yield, like max yield, and but still pe people want to push that as much as possible on the early side. Well, there's never... You know, when the window is open, when the weather's right yeah. for planting, yeah. there's no guarantee that it's going to come again soon. And how soon it's going to close. Yeah. And on top of that, people are planting more acres yeah. than, than they used yeah. to. And so th they need to have a long uh, yeah. window when they can get all their plantings in. Yeah. So that they're Bigger gonna, farms. They're going to start early. And uh, yeah. so, so, you know, sometimes we make our recommendations from, from our ivory tower. But at the same time, we do understand there's something. You have an ivory tower in Kentucky, too? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My own. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, yeah, not to go down you know, too much into this, but these are, I think these are some of the issues that, that we face in Iowa. Is, you know, the, when farmers talk about trying to save some money and cut back on cost, you know, seed treatment's one of those that you know, might not always be appropriate for everybody. But the concern for pests like wireworms and grubs, those, they get some protection, you know, from a seed treatment that you wouldn't get from, say, just planting the BT. But again, you know, how common is a wireworm? You know, to us, not that common. And, and I've heard in the South, yeah, we get more bang. Well, I hear from the entomologists in the South, they get more bang for their buck on a seed treatment than, say, we do in, um, up here. And wireworm is one of the, the pests that they throw around. It's more know. likely to encounter. Yeah. But, but, you know, I would say that the history of having wireworm problems is a good predictor of risk in the future. Okay. And so those that have not had wireworm problems, sure. you know, they're much less likely to get a wireworm benefit from that seed treatment. Yeah, that's a good point. So it's not like soybean aphid or... Um, cutworm or something that that comes in migrates and you go you know from not having a problem to ooh, what just happened you know they can have uh, three year or longer life cycles and so I, I tell people you know you had a, a wireworm problem in uh, 2015 in 2017 when that field goes back into corn it could be the same individual wireworms right. that are yeah. out there mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. still the same yeah you know, on the later side of their development yeah <laughs> I think we have a title now for our... What's that? Oh, man. Matt usually I, thinks oh, of the titles because he, yeah. he's clever with the we're gonna We're going to wire this one in. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, gotcha. Rick Besson. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have an interest in birds? Uh... I, I appreciate birds. I had, had a birder. I, I had a graduate student who was a birder, <laughs> yeah. and everywhere I would take him, he was always looking at birds. Because you mentioned the crazy bird that you encountered when you were beekeeping in in North Africa, the the bee eater, and it was an absolutely beautiful bird. Yeah, and sometimes. I think beauty is correlated with destructiveness with some of these animals. <laughs> and uh, while it was a beautiful bird with all these stripes of different colored plumage, uh, 
during the summer, you know, I'd get uh, flocks of them around my bees, and they they'd just uh, be eating my bees, and I'd see the droppings of the birds, and they're just full of bee carcasses, and and, and they're catching them in flight. They're catching them in flight. In fact, I'd have That's a col- I'd have a colony open. I'm working the bees, and these birds are swooping down right next to me, picking off the bees that are buzzing me. Wow. So for our listeners, uh, Rick spent some time in the Peace Corps in Tunisia, and then he also spent a year and a half working privately full-time there for, additionally with with bees. So quite a bit of experience with bees, which is amazing. And you still have bees in your backyard. Yeah, (laughs) I I, I started with bees in the 70s, and so Mm -hmm. as as a hobby. Like before they were cool. <laughs> back back when it's, it seemed like most of the beekeepers I would talk to were in their sixties and seventies okay. back back. Then. I think beekeepers are always old. Yeah. <laughs> I mean the professional ones. I don't know if it's the uh, there's no young beekeepers. The, you know, don't see hmm. not at the scale that you were working at, right? You had hundreds and hundreds of hives. Hundreds of hives. Is yeah. That? Well, I, I had over a hundred hives, and I was working with some people that had you know upwards of a thousand hives. Wow. Jeez. Not at one place, right? I mean, they were spread out. They they had different apiaries, and and we we would move them around the country based on the the honey flows and things like that. Was that pretty common in that part of the world to to move the bees where the the flow was going to be? This was the biggest beekeeper in the country. Okay. So at the time, you know, you'd move it around. But we we had some wonderful... crops that we could move them into. We could move our bees into oranges and eucalyptus and thyme fields and heather fields. And would they harvest the honeys from those and sell them as thyme honey, as rosemary honey? Or I would. would. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'd try and isolate them. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And and each one tasted different. they, They looked different. The one problem we had with the heather honey, which came in in October, November, was it would granulate very fast. If you leave it for a few weeks in the colony, you end up with a lot of granulated really? honey in the cones. It just and did the bees mind that? Do they mind having granulated honey? No, they'll, they'll eat it. The, fine with... But you know, for us, we, we can't extract it once it solidifies. Oh, right. oh, so, oh, wow. so that kind of reminded me of the we have a we have a day in the summer that we celebrate pollinators. Maybe you do too, pollinator fest. And didn't you have a, you had a honey tasting this year? Kids yeah. got to taste different yeah, so, kinds of honey. Yeah, so every, well, every, we've done this twice now at our Ryman Gardens, and um, we invite people who are bee enthusiasts. and A lot of kids. Yeah, and we have a bunch of displays, um, and this year we did a, a honey tasting, and uh, um, I had some orange blossom honey, some neem honey, which, yeah, I uh, found it online. I thought that would be interesting, because neem is... Uh, used in some parts of the world as a botanical insecticide. And I was like, I can't. From a neem just, tree? Yeah. yeah. Kind of curious what the honey would taste like. And then clover. Um, and then as a, just to see how well the audience could deal with this, I threw in some non-honeys. I put some corn syrup. And, <laughs> I didn't uh, know you did that. Put, put in corn syrup and KFC honey barbecue sauce. And I had one guy come up. And so I have them all out. Imagine a row of these, right? And And they had little... Um, chips that they could dip in and taste and then you know there was a score sheet and they would match up the bowls with the uh, sorry I'm pounding I'm so excited I'm pounding on no, that's great. Like, so um, I had this guy come up and go he points to a bowl and he, he says I know exactly what that is I said really it's like I am a honey expert I can tell you immediately what that one is I don't even have to taste it 
I'm like, really? Well, what do you think it is? That is buckwheat honey. <laughs> like, I was like, it's a sir, KFC concoction. Be my guest. <laughs> and he tasted. Yeah, it was the KFC barbecue sauce. <laughs> he's like, I didn't say it was a good honey bee taster. <laughs> honey taster, but yeah, no was, actual honey involved. But buckwheat should be a very, very dark honey. It is. Yeah, yeah. and and side by side. Comparing that to barbecue sauce, kind of hard. <laughs> yeah. And and I, it, the one that I got was a little granulated, and uh, you know, I, I, we were joking, but I was like, yeah, I can see why you would say that. But the, uh, it was interesting because most people walk away from that experience going, I didn't realize there was that much diversity. You know, like what you were describing in Tunisia, all the different flavors. Most of what we get is just clover honey. Yeah. 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 But what's interesting is. Uh, my son has started saving a, uh, a half-pound jar of the honey each year. And even though it's the same type of honey, you know, it's clover or it's, for us, black locust makes a very nice mm. honey. Oh, yeah. Each year, you know, you look at the jars and it's like there's variation between years. And so it's almost like, oh, that's the, uh, you know, the 2012 vintage. vintage. <laughs> yeah. 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 So depending on what was blooming, maybe more dominantly? Yeah, you know, in, in the neighborhood because they're foraging locally around your home. Yeah, yeah. It could, could have been different conditions, and they had a different mm-hmm. uh, profile of other things in there. Mm-hmm. But there, yeah, so there's variation among plants. There's even within plants, you get some variation, mm-hmm. which I don't, I don't even know if we appreciate as fully as we should. Because I don't think I. You know, Maybe my growers. palate's not as distinguished. Well, that's the, the other difference. thing is, yeah, you get so used to honey being just honey flavored you know that you kind of you go into it with low expectations and I, I was telling people it's like well they're like oh, they would ask like well, how much difference is there it's like well who, who cares honey is just sweet it's like well you don't order pizza and ask for the pizza flavored pizza you know you want you know your different <laughs> toppings and all and you know because I, I buy honey from the Des Moines farmers market and they all say like this is the best and I feel like that that tastes like honey I don't know if I'm able to distinguish like really good honey from other stuff. I, I think one thing that makes for really good honey is to get fresh local honey. Mm-hmm. Because over time, honey loses some of the aromatics. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you really do want to get... Don't save it. Yeah. yeah. Get, get, use it. Use and, it. And get your local honey where, you know, the, the beekeeper pulled it off a month ago. And uh, I think the best honey is when you stick your finger in the frame that you just pulled out of the hive, and you know it's it's <laughs> five minutes best. old. It's and, the best. And, it's warm. <laughs> yeah, but you know it, it it has compounds that are coming off that you can smell and all that, and you know over time it's just going to lose some of those. Yeah. I didn't think about that because I usually store and bring it out for special occasions, and I'm 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 probably killing the experience. You got to use yeah. it. Yeah, you do. And it's a plug for your local beekeepers. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Get it fresh. But we certainly have, I mean, a variety that I know when I go to the farmer's markets, there's options, definitely a lot of options. And even our state bee guy, Andy Joseph, now sells honey. So he works for the Department of Ag and Land Stewardship. He sells, and he also sells beeswax candles and everything else. He was my student. Oh, really? <laughs> that's awesome. I knew that's, oh, that's amazing. Really? I didn't make yeah. the connection. Oh, that's wild. Yeah. yeah. So he, yeah. Uh, Blazing Star Meadow is what he calls his company. And yeah. he, oh, yeah. He was your student. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Oh, my gosh. Well, it's a small world, isn't yeah. it? It's a very yeah. small world. So he's great. 
Yeah, mean, yeah. We love thank Andy. you. Yeah, thank you. Oh, you're he getting a plug for that. Yeah. So the uh, 100% extension. You're working pest management. We talked. Yeah, I, I way work, too long about wireworms. Yeah, I work as the and, IPM coordinator. I've I've worked in uh, helping field crop growers, fruit and vegetable growers, greenhouse growers. Work with master gardeners. I I jokingly say that I do everything that other people don't want to do. And you've trained the future. You trained our... Well, yeah, speaking of sticking your finger right into it, that's what he let me do. I, I went out and spent a day with Andy last summer, and he showed me a couple of the hives that he manages and pulled some frames. He had some different kinds of, uh, like, Italian and Russian-type hives, which, mm-hmm. was, you know, t- I was learning uh, a lot. And he, he pulled some frames out and literally let me, you know, taste right, right then and there, and it was really fun. I had the bee suit on. First time I got to experience that with bees, like, rushing all around you. It was kind of an adrenaline rush, and he, he didn't have anything on. He was just, like, you know, free. You Are know, you one of those kind of beekeepers? You don't need you don't any wear gloves, type of gear. You yeah, you're hardcore. Uh, He's hardcore. No, she, uh, you know, T-shirt, shorts. I had, like, the duct tape wrists. I was, like, sand, full of Sandals. Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, and, uh, <laughs> up on the ladder looking in the top of the uh, beehive. Uh, we, were, we were clearing out. Oh, we got to to wrap up she's well, giving no, us, five, we have five minutes but, good. well and you got to go give your seminar but um one little story we we cleared out our beehives from one of our uh, experimental sites this weekend and um, i went with our biologist amy toth and one of our grad students and they they were doing the uh like you described you know just a veil no gloves you know and we're moving what do we have four eight colonies about four three to four deep and uh, <laughs> there are bees everywhere. And I'm just like, can I put a veil on top of this veil? <laughs> <laughs> and they just, it doesn't. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I don't use a veil. And uh, uh, actually, uh, years ago, I had some knee surgery. You know, I had an ACL replacement oh. on my knee. And it got to the point after the surgery, my knee kept hurting, you know, years later. And Did you do the and, well, self Inflicted. I, I was getting some cortisone therapy from my doctor, and it wasn't helping. And I started the bee sting therapy. Really? Oh man! And so I I, I started it because uh, uh, it after about uh, six weeks or so, the the pain went away. Oh I mean, my gosh. It's, you know, I, I wasn't kept it six weeks of bee sting what? therapy every day. No, but you know, several times a week. Okay. Two wow. sides of the knee. And I went back to my physician, and I told her what I was doing, and I was expecting to be ridiculed for yeah. doing some sort of voodoo medicine or something like that. And she says, well, that's pretty interesting. And I said, you know, I really don't mind. Even if it's just a placebo effect I'm getting, I, I'm not having any, uh, you know, prescription for painkillers or anything like that. And, and she suggested where I sting my knee. But, you know, I've been doing it for... Uh, 12 years you now. continue to do this i continue to do it, but i don't have to do it as often i, I do it two or three times a year and that's wow. it and there, then there's no pain you're amazing so there's two, no way oh, I could do and, that. and again if it's all in my head i'm comfortable with that too yeah, yeah, because yeah. i'm not saying about your head <laughs> <laughs> i had a acl reconstruction and there's no way i'm letting bees sting my knee <laughs> yeah. well you know in the peace corps i, I was literally stung you know wow. Thousands, if not tens of thousands, of times, oh and so oh. yeah. And uh, you're maybe, like superhuman. Maybe that's a good place to end it. I think tens I think, of thousands of stings, <laughs> and he's still walking, and, and he's smiling. Yeah, right. And he's smiling. Yeah, he's he's about to give a departmental seminar 
for us, uh, kind of highlighting some of his extension efforts. And like we said at the very beginning, basically you're kind of doing everything. And That's so, amazing. yeah, I'm looking forward to the seminar very much. So, yeah, I think it's a good place to end. Thanks, man. Yeah. Appreciate you coming in. Thank you very much I for your time. It, it, was, is, uh, it went fast. It's one of our best. Yeah, 30 minutes went like, wow. like so. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you.